0: Would you join me in praying as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, we need your presence here with us. If this is just us gathering on a Sunday morning to sing some songs and uh, hear what I have to say, we've missed it, uh, and this is fruitless. Short of your presence, nothing this morning means anything, Lord Jesus. Would you make your presence known to us as we come to your word now? Would you, through your Holy Spirit, just bring light into our hearts, God? give us the ability to understand. May we experience your presence with us this morning and may we be different because of it. Lord Jesus, may you increase this morning and I decrease. May we decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. So Steve wasn't kidding about me cutting my sermon in half, but not because of uh, him taking too long sharing uh, once I got to 45 slides that were going to go up there, I was like, you know, this could be a lot. <laughs> and I still was going, maybe I'll try to squeeze it in. And it's silliness. Uh, so there will be kind of an abrupt ending. This will we'll just turn it into a two-parter. Uh, so forgive me for that part. But we're going to kind of start with, uh, we're working through the book of, of Mark, uh, for those who haven't been with us the last mm, six months or so. Uh, we're going to start by just kind of framing a conversation, and and then next time we'll talk about some practical steps uh, to kind of implement what we're talking about. So first let me back up, because it's been a couple weeks uh, since we've uh, spoke about what Jesus was doing here in the book of Mark. Uh, The last time that I was up here and spoke about Mark, we had Jesus doing two of the most un-Jesus-like things that he does. Two of the things that if you just grew up in Sunday school and heard all the stories, like these don't seem to fit with a lot of the the Jesus things. This man of peace walking around blessing everyone, laying hands on children, healing the sick. There's two stories that are kind of anomalies and Mark puts both of them together. That's the, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. We looked at these a few weeks back because they leave you scratching your head. They just seem so out of character for Jesus. So we found Jesus. We we started reading uh, on the first day of his last week of ministry leading up to the cross. Uh, Nowadays, we call it Holy Week. And it starts with the triumphal entry. Jesus heading into Jerusalem and there's a parade. They're cutting palm branches and laying them in front of him, putting their, their coats down so that he, even his donkey doesn't touch dirt. And they're, they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's this parade that breaks out on Sunday And so his disciples are walking around Jerusalem with him and everyone's hailing him. And probably like nowadays they'd be buying him drinks and food and whatever else. They're they're celebrating him. And this is Sunday. Monday morning comes and the disciples have to be going, what's coming today? If yesterday was a parade, what's going to happen today? How do you top that? And so they start heading into Jerusalem. And along the path, outside of the city walls, Jesus veers off the path. He takes a detour, and they see him walking up to this, this one fig tree standing alone. All the other ones are still kind of dead-looking. This one has leaves all over it. And they see Jesus heading for it, and hey, we didn't get much breakfast. Maybe he's hungry, whatever it is. They follow him up to it, and they simply see Jesus look at the tree and say, may no one ever eat fruit from you again he curses this tree without any explanation and turns and heads into the city. And we go, well, that was kind of un-Jesus-like. And then we see Jesus head into the city and he marches straight into the temple. And there is this uh, hustle and bustle happening in the temple. This is the busiest week on the temple calendar. People are coming from all over the world, getting ready to celebrate Passover And they're bringing their sacrifices to the temple. We talked about this. Those who traveled from a long way off couldn't bring their sacrifices with them. So they had to come and buy them in Jerusalem. And what you would do is you would go into the temple. And they had this one outer court kind of blocked off. And that was the market. That's where you bought your doves or your lamb or your goat or your sheep. And Jesus walks into the middle of this place and just goes ham loses his mind, flipping tables, breaking cages to let the animals out. He's even running up and stopping people from coming into the temple court. People that are bringing new things that they're trying to sell, this lamb, this dove, whatever it may be, and he's stopping them in their tracks. He won't even let them enter. And everyone is scratching their heads. And Jesus marches up to the religious leaders and he says, why have you turned my father's house into a den of robbers? My father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And then he goes home. Then they leave the city, and that's the end of Monday. And the disciples have to be like, what in the world was that? We've never done anything like that before. First, you you cursed a tree, then you started tearing apart the temple. What happened? And Jesus would later show them that the two things are actually tied together. We looked at this two times before. I don't need to preach the whole message again. But Jesus walked up to that tree, the tree full of leaves, but empty of fruit, and he cursed it because that tree was promising life. Those leaves were proclaiming, I have what you need. Come get figs. Jesus wanted something to eat, and this tree, by those leaves, had a big sign that said, come and get it here. But when he walked up, it was empty promises. There was no fruit. And so Jesus curses it. Then he walks into the temple and he kind of proclaims the same thing. You are full of leaves. You are full of promises. This was the Passover. This was the big one. Jews would have told everyone they knew where they were going. We're going to Jerusalem to celebrate what God has done. And Jesus said, you're all promise, no fruit. You're actually robbing one another in here. They had hiked up all of the prices because they knew people were coming in. They were actually keeping the poor from being able to worship. And the place that they had set up as their market was actually the place that all the Gentiles, everyone non-Jewish, was supposed to come and worship. This was supposed to be, as Jesus said, a house of prayer for all nations, and they had made it impossible for the nations to come. And Jesus said, you're just like that tree, full of leaves, no fruit. And they would be cursed for it. And the challenge remains the same for us, for those of us that even follow Jesus today. The reason that Peter through Mark put that story in there is a warning to those that follow Jesus and go, where's your fruit? You can talk the talk, but show me the fruit. Where is your love for people? Where is your inviting the nations to come and worship God? It's a warning for us. Be careful that our lives are not all leaves and no fruit. Okay, so that's kind of a recap. Does that make sense? You guys remember back to last time enough? Okay. Because here we pick up the following morning. This is now Tuesday morning. Sunday was great. Monday was super weird. Now it's Tuesday and the disciples have to be like, man, I don't even know Like, what is going to happen today. And so it starts like this early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. In one day, this entire tree died from the roots up. This didn't happen. There was no disease that killed that quickly, and it's not like someone came in the middle of the night and chopped it down. It withered. It was Jesus cursed it, and there's this kind of negative miracle. This supernatural thing happened to kill the fig tree, and his disciples are astonished. Jesus, you simply spoke to it, and now it's dead. In Matthew's account, they actually asked the question, how can this be? How did you... Jesus, you just spoke words and this happened. How? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them and you will have them. Let's start at the beginning here. We're just going to kind of work through this piece by piece because if you've been walking with Jesus at all, you know there's, there's a lot in here. There's, there's some bold promises in here. But let me start with this question, and this is where we can have a conversation. I would invite you to share. What does it mean to have faith in God? Jesus starts his whole thing. They're going, whoa, this is crazy. How did this happen? What even happened? And Jesus starts by telling them, have faith in God. What does it mean to have faith in God? If we can't answer this one, we got a problem. What was that? Trust. Faith and trust are synonyms. If that is helpful to you at all when understanding faith as as we begin to talk about it, faith and trust are synonymous. To have faith in God is to trust God. What does it mean? What does it look like to have faith in God? okay, to have confidence that if God promised it, God's going to do it. Good. What else? So uh, two parts to that. First, faith in God looks like like what you guys have said, trust, confidence that God will do what he said, because as Jesus told us, he's your father. And so you think of it like a father and a son, a father trusting his son. When uh, Again, the story she shared, Pastor Mark used to share when he was uh, swimming at the lake and Bowen wanted to jump off of this dock to him, and it was kind of a big jump for a little kid, and he would just be in the water going, trust me, jump. You know, and finally Bowen works up the courage to trust his father and he takes a leap and has the time of his life. But I think it, the way Mark tells it, it was also the last day and it was kind of like, cool, great job. Now get in the car. You missed it. Uh, <laughs> a kind of a warning to the rest of us, jump on the first day. You'll have a lot more fun. But so there's this trust as a son trusts his father, as a daughter trusts their father. And it all comes in relationship. With him. Faith in God is built, is founded in, begins and ends with relationship. That's good. What are their thoughts? What does it mean? What does it look like to have faith in God? To believe? Yeah. 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 That's, it should be, someone should write that down, I feel like. Hebrews 11.1 one, uh, gives us the definition of faith. They say, now this is faith, the assurance of things hoped for. And what, what did your translation say? The conviction of things not seen. The one that I grew up with was sure and certain. Sure of the things you hope for, certain of the things that you cannot see. Basically, kind of back to David's thing, confidence. If God said it, he's going to do it. And to live with that kind of confidence, that assurance that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. Stepping into the water before it parts, there's a a story in the book of Joshua when the nation of Israel is going to cross over the Jordan. And God doesn't say, keep everybody back, I'm going to part the water and then walk across. What he says is, have the priests first walk into the water and watch what I do. And it's not until their foot gets wet that the river parts and they're able to cross it. So oftentimes faith in God means obedience before we even see him moving, which is an incredibly scary thing. Any other thoughts? We're gonna gonna circle back to this. We don't have to get it all the way done yet, but any other thoughts? Okay, knowing that his will will be done, trusting. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So we're gonna circle back to this a little more, but Jesus places this at the front because this is foundational. So we'll circle back to it, but I wanna kind of keep moving forward. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God, I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them and you will have them. This picture that Jesus uses of the mountain, uh, that was a very common phrase back then. The mountain meant something insurmountable in life. This challenge that you just couldn't overcome. Their teachers would have used this all the time and talking about these mountains in life. And Jesus says, have faith in God. If you do, you could say to this mountain, whatever this insurmountable thing in your life is, be thrown into the sea. And if you believe and don't doubt, it will be moved. Okay, so he's kind of taking this common phrase that they would have had, but they would have used it as, well, I went as far as I could until I hit the mountain. The mountain was just too big is the way they would have used it. And Jesus says, when you have faith, you say to the mountain, move, and it moves. If you believe and don't doubt. Mark 10, 27, a chapter before, because then that mountain represented that impossible thing. A chapter ago, uh, Jesus was talking with the rich young ruler and tells him, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And it says the man went away brokenhearted because he was really rich. And the disciples are going, Jesus, that was... That was kind of harsh. That was, a, that was a big step you told him to take. And Jesus said, it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, it's even harder than fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. Fitting a camel through an, a needle's eye is easier than a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples understood what Jesus said because they responded with, Lord, that's impossible. That's impossible. Who can ever be saved them? And Jesus says this beautiful promise. Looking at them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Jesus is trying to hammer this home to them. There is no mountain too big that your faith can't overcome it. There is nothing too impossible for God. His will will be done. Jesus is hammering this home to them, When our faith connects us to the power of God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is insurmountable. So Jesus replied to them, have faith in God, I assure you. If anyone says to the mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Doubt fights against faith. Doubt and faith are warring in the hearts and minds of the followers of Jesus. They were warring in the minds of the disciples, and Jesus was telling them, your belief has to overcome your doubt. James says it like this. James was also a witness to all of this. He would have heard Jesus teaching, and he's kind of just putting another spin on it. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like a surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. Doubt short circuits are connection to the power of the kingdom. An indecisive man is unstable. That person should not expect to receive anything. Doubt breaks that connection, the connection of faith that connects us to the power of God. Doubt in what though? That is a very important question, one that we're going to put a pin in and we're going to come back to. But doubt breaks the connection. And then Jesus makes this, probably the boldest claim in all of this passage. Therefore I tell you, All the things you pray and ask for, I believe, or excuse me, believe that you have received them and you will have them. So again, let's talk. Is Jesus saying that if we believe hard enough, if we have enough faith, that God must give us what we want? Is that what he's saying? I mean, because just at at a glance, reading it at a glance, therefore, I tell you all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them and you will have them if you believe hard enough, if you have enough faith, God has to give them to you? Is that that what he's saying? I hear a solitary no ringing out there. If not, then what's he mean? Okay, I agree with you. Is that what he's saying? This is a tough one. This passage right here has been one of, here's the thing, I want to say one of the most controversial things in the Christian community that people fight over. It's hard to say though, we create a ton of controversy. But this has been one of those things that Christians have been debating and dividing and arguing over for hundreds, if not thousands of years. What did Jesus mean when he said this? If we just name it, we can claim it. You know, there are many that would teach that, that if you just believe hard enough, God will give you the desires of your heart. If you want it bad enough, God will give it to you. There are plenty who teach that. If he's not saying that here, how do we interpret this? So it's about his will and what he wants more than it is just about our will and what we want. Is that a fair way to, or do you have more? <laughs> I love the decisiveness. Thank you, Miss Kitty. This is, it's a tough one. Go ahead. So the more that we strive to follow Jesus, to have faith in him as we talked about, the more that what we want will line up with what he wants is kind of what she's saying. He is very much not a genie in a lamp. Amen. So here's what I'm going to say, Tim. I'm going to ask you to make sure that I come back to that point. Uh, if I get to the end of this message and I start praying and I haven't touched on that yet, yell something out. Because I want to come back to that. Because there are things where you go, man, how? This is a, this is such a tough one because we go, how do we make them fit together? And it's tricky. David, did you have something? Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, where does the belief come from the faith that Jesus has already discussed? What's the object of that faith, of that belief? Because here's the part where um, a name it, claim it, a just want it bad enough and God will give it to you kind of thing. Here's where it falls apart. If that's my belief, that if I just can muster enough faith, God will give me whatever it is that I want. Again, just taking this one passage, and we're going to look at some others that kind of bring some light to it. But if I just take this at face value and think no further on it, What is my faith really in at that point? It's in my faith. If I can get enough faith, God has to do what I want. My faith is in my faith. I got to just muster up more. I got to just get more. I got to want it more. And if I can get enough of that, there's kind of the scale that tips. Now God has to do what I want. He's the genie in the lamp at that point. My faith is actually in my own faith which is certainly not what scripture teaches. Matthew 17, 20, Jesus talking about uh, this idea of faith, and he's he's actually talking to his disciples who weren't able to do something. They weren't able to cast out uh, this demon. They were going, Jesus, why? And he's telling them, it's not an amount of faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. It's not an amount of faith. You just needed more. It's an object of faith. What is your faith in? Back to where Jesus started, he replied to them, have faith in God. It is about the object of your faith, not how much of it you can muster up. So Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them and you will have them. What we're going to practice right now is something that's uh, an incredibly important practice when it comes to understanding God's word. And that's this, we always read scripture in light of scripture. If there's something in scripture that doesn't make sense, doesn't seem to jive, doesn't match up, we don't just make up something to believe, nor do we just cross it out and go confusing, I guess, I don't need to worry about it. We read other scriptures that shed light on that. So we're gonna look at some other scriptures right now that talk about this idea of praying and receiving from the Father, that talk about praying in faith and see what kind of light they shed on this because again, just reading Matthew eleven twenty four 24 by itself, you come to a conclusion that you go, that doesn't fit everything else that I know. How do I begin to understand it? Let's look at other scripture passages that shed light. Starting in John 14, 12 to 14. Again, John was there too. John heard all of this, saw all of this. And here's what John has to say. Very truly, I tell you, Uh, This is, again, Jesus speaking. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. Jesus is talking about the miraculous things that he's been doing, and he goes, those who follow me, who believe in me, you're going to be able to do these things as well, which is already crazy, and they will even do greater things than these. I'm pausing for effect. To do greater things than Jesus seems insane. It actually seems a little blasphemous, except it's Jesus saying it. They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. They sound really similar, right? But there's one little addition, one little clarifying addition that John makes. What is it? Say it loud. okay we He're saying, "You will glorify the Father when you ask in my name." OK? So John is adding a little clarifying piece. Math or excuse me, Mark just recorded it as anything you ask the father will do. We've talked about this before. Peter was a pretty blunt guy, just given the facts and moving on. And so we look at John, who gives kind of a more detailed account. And he has Jesus saying, anything you ask in my name. Someone's name back then, every name had meaning. And someone's name was kind of the essence of who they are. It's why in uh, the Old Testament, to even know the name of God was this incredibly intimate thing. They were so careful about when they would even speak God's name. There was, there was a certain name for God, Yahweh, that they wouldn't even speak because to even utter his name was so holy. It it, it put you in such close proximity to him that they were like, we can't, no human can be at that level. Like that's just, it's too far. And Jesus says, when you pray and pray in my name, it has this idea of alignment. When you and I are so close together, when we are so aligned that you pray in my name, you'll receive what you ask for. What we've done is we've turned pray in my name into we add in Jesus' name, amen, to the end of all of our prayers as if by rubber stamping it with that, now God has to do what we want. Now our prayers are powerful and effective. That's just man-made. You guys know you can end a prayer without saying in Jesus' name, amen, right? And it still can be powerful. You can pray really weak, even unbiblical prayers, say in Jesus' name, and they're not going anywhere. We made that up. When Jesus says prayers in my name, he's saying... If you align yourself with me, you will see my father move. He's almost like he's saying this. When you ask my father and you and I are in alignment, you can have confidence that my father will move in power. Power in prayer comes through alignment with him. Interesting study sometime. Look at some of the prayers of Jesus. And you'll find sometimes he spends all day and all night in prayer and other times barely a thing. Like two that I'll give you an example of real quick. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, how long did he spend praying beforehand? Anybody know? When Jesus raised a dead person to life, dead in the tomb for three days, brought life back to him, called him out. Here was Jesus' prayer. I'm Paraphrasing, Lord, I'm only praying so that they know that it's you that's doing this. Lazarus, come forth. That's it. And a dead man is raised. When Jesus is going to the cross, how long does he spend in prayer? Hours, all night, until the betrayer comes to get him. Because what's his prayer? Lord, if there is any other way, if there's a plan B, let's do that if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. When it came to Lazarus, Jesus was going, Lord, you and me are on the same page. Let's do it. That was his prayer. When it came to going to the cross, he spent hours even to the point of sweating blood because he's going, Father, we're not on the same page and I will remain here until we are. Not my will, but yours be done. And it said that he kept praying the same thing again and again because he was going, Lord, until you and I are in alignment, I'm missing out on your power, and I can't do this without you. So he went back a second time, a third time, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. Father, bring me into alignment with you. Is this making sense, church? Two of you. Okay, good. Power in prayer comes through alignment with him. Over in 1 John uh, chapter 5, this is John saying this later. And he says, now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears what we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. So now again, John is kind of refining it a little more and bringing it home closer. When we ask anything according to his will. Remember Jesus' prayer, not my will but yours be done. The way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is, er, yeah, John here is tying this together for us and saying that, again, this alignment thing, if we're going to see power in prayer, if we're going to be able to pray in faith in confidence, there has to be some sense of, I know that I'm praying according to the will of God. I know that my confidence isn't that I wanted it bad enough or that I asked in the right way. My confidence is that what God wills, God will do. And I'm praying in alignment with His will. Power in prayer comes through alignment with Him. Alignment with Him comes through knowing His will. And if you're a good student at all, you're now asking the question how do we know His will? It seems like a big thing to know the will of God, to understand the will of someone where uh, Isaiah the prophet says that as far as the heavens are above the earth, he he is above us. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And go, and I'm supposed to know what he wants? I'm supposed to understand his will? It seems so far out there. But John is putting it in those clear terms. When you pray according to his will, have confidence that you'll have what, we ask, or what you asked for. Paul says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if you asked Paul, can you know the will of Almighty God? Paul would have said, yeah. Renew your mind. Refuse to conform to the patterns of this world. Renew your mind and you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Tim, back to what you were mentioning. Uh, we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul says, I have this thorn in the flesh, and I've prayed three times that God would take it away, and essentially God said no. And we go, Paul said you could understand God's will. Maybe you can't, or maybe he just did he just miss that one, whatever it is. It's really important to test and approve what God's will is. Here's here's my take on things. We have about a three-sentence chunk in Scripture where Paul describes this. And so this is me kind of reading into that. Paul has this thorn in the flesh. Some people think that his eyes were bad. He makes a mention in some other letter about, you can see this is my own handwriting. I got bad eyes and I'm writing real big. You know, and so some people think, okay, his eyes were bad. Maybe he had a limp. We, We don't know. But he had some kind of physical affliction. And this was Paul who would would use a handkerchief and people would grab it and mail it to a sick friend and the, the friend that would touch the handkerchief was healed. Like legitimately crazy stuff happening. And Paul's like, oh, well, my eyes, my back, whatever this thing may be, I'll just pray and ask God to take it away and maybe it'll be healed. He says, I prayed three times and the Lord said no. I prayed three times and found out that it wasn't according to God's will. And does Paul go, so then I just shrug my shoulders and walk away? What was Paul's response to this? What did he actually receive from the Lord? Anybody remember? Grace. Paul found out the will of God by praying, by bringing himself into alignment and going, Lord, is it your will to take this from me? I, I, I would love to be able to see, think of the ministry I'd be able to do. Will you touch my body? He brought this to it three times, kind of like Jesus in the garden three times, If there's a plan B, let's do it, but not my will, but yours. Assuming Paul had that similar posture of going, God, here's what I really, really want to be able to see, but not my will, but yours be done. And after the third time, Paul tells us, God told me his will. My will is not to heal you. My will is that my strength would be made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. So what was the will of God for Paul? for the thorn to remain and for Paul to rely on the grace of God and see God's strength made perfect in Paul's weakness. I think after Paul writes 2 Corinthians, you go up to him and you go, man, I noticed the the glasses, man, what's going on? And he would say, it's God's will that that I have this, again, if it was his eyes, that I can't see well because I'm learning to rely on his strength and his grace. And I'm finding that it's sufficient. I think Paul would clearly tell you, I know God's will in this situation. And then he actually goes on to rejoice. He finishes that that statement by going, and now I boast in all of my weaknesses. Paul understood the, the, the will of God. And he found faith and power in it. Does that make sense? Power comes, power in prayer comes through alignment with him. Alignment with him comes through knowing his will. Knowledge of his will comes through a renewed mind. So how is our mind renewed? We're just working it back. We're letting scripture illuminate itself. And as we ask a question, we seek where scripture answers that question. Back to John, Jesus talking in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throwing into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Okay, so first, let's, this vine and branch image. They would have been very familiar with grape plants back then, grape vines And there was this one main vine that was connected to the roots and everything flowed through this vine. And then there were these separate branches that shot off and that's where the fruit hung. And Jesus says, I'm the vine. Everything you need is in me. If you will just do your job and remain connected to the vine, you'll bear fruit. And almost back to the fig tree thing, those that don't bear fruit are cut off and thrown aside. They wither and are thrown into the fire and die. There's a warning in there as well. But then he says this, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. How are our minds renewed so that we can understand God's will and pray in faith that it's according to his will? We remain connected to the vine. We abide in him. This word abide is not a word we use very often now. It means literally living in, like you abide in your house. To live in Christ. He's he's the covering. Everything comes under him. As Shirley said earlier, it begins and ends with my relationship with Christ. It is in everything. It is in fact everything. When we will take this view of things, it's preeminent. It's not the first thing on my list. It is the list. Everything else in the list falls under abiding in Christ, remaining in relationship with him we will become like him. Our minds will be renewed and you can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Power in prayer comes through alignment with him. Alignment with him comes through knowing his will. Knowledge of his will comes through a renewed mind and renewal comes through abiding relationship. When we learn to abide in him, we will become like him. We will see as he sees we will pray as he prays and we will do as he does. And if I can quote Jesus here, we'll do even greater things than he did. Which seems so far out of the realm of possibilities, it would be a miracle. Amen. Power flows through our connection to the Father through faith. Think of where Jesus started with all of this back at the beginning. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Walk closely with him. Abide in him and your mind will be renewed. You will understand the will of God and you will have confidence when you pray accordingly. Then, whatever you ask, have confidence because you can know my Father will give it to you if you believe and don't doubt. So this would be the most natural place to stop, but I have to go one step further. It's going to be a little clunky ending, but I said that we would come back to doubt. Because Jesus said, if you believe and not doubt, and I said, doubt what? Because this is an important thing. So I'm going to just give you this one thing, and then we'll pick up the rest the next time. There are certain things that can short-circuit our connection. They they short-circuit our faith. They move us out of abiding relationship with him, the abiding relationship necessary to experience kingdom power. And we're going to look at more of a list next time, but I have to touch on the first one here, doubt. We asked earlier, Jesus said very clearly, if you doubt, basically don't expect anything. He said through James, he said himself, like if you believe without doubting, know that you'll receive what you ask for. Doubt short circuits faith. It moves us out of that abiding relationship, but it's a really important question. Doubt in what? I don't think it's doubt in the fact of like, I told God I want a car. Is he really gonna give it to me? I ask God, maybe Paul would say, I ask God to heal this thorn in my flesh. I don't know if he's going to do it or not. I don't think that's the kind of doubt that sweeps the legs out from under. I think there's something more important. Back to James 1, 5 through 8. We we looked at this earlier. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like a surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. Okay, but doubt what, James? I don't think it's doubting the wisdom that God may give. When God speaks, certainly in the beginning, you're going to have this feeling of, okay, I think that was him, but I don't know for sure. But I think it was, that's when faith comes in and you go, okay, I'm going to choose to trust him. Even though there's this doubt present, I'm going to choose. And God applauds that. God honors that. He's not going, how dare you? I think what's more important is do we doubt that God gives generously to all without criticizing? Do we doubt the character of God? That will cut the legs out from under your faith every single time. Jesus says this about his father. In Matthew chapter seven, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? What's, what's at stake here isn't, okay, like, here's what God gave me. Is this going to be enough? Oh no, if I have any doubt there whatsoever, God's going to be mad and hit me over the head. What's at stake is, do I trust that he's a good father that gives good gifts? Remember what Jesus said, have faith in God. Do I trust that he is the kind of God that will fulfill his promises? That when he said he'll he'll meet all of my needs, he's trustworthy. When he says he's a good father that gives good gifts, he's trustworthy. When he says he'll answer prayers according to his will, he's trustworthy. And like Paul, that also means if the answer is no, he's trustworthy. What is our faith in? What is our doubt in? It's not in the things that he gives. It's in him himself. Do we have this doubt? Do you view God? This is, this is a struggle that I have. This is a doubt that I have that the Lord and I are working through. I view God as a judge waiting to drop the hammer far too often. He's probably mad at me again. He's probably going, come on, dummy. We can't be here again. This is how my default, I start to slide into view God, which is doubting his character, that he is a good father who waits to give good gifts. Uh, Jesus says later, every good and perfect gift comes from the father above. And there's times when I doubt it because I think God's probably only as good of a person as I am. And if somebody did to me what I did to him, no way would I forgive him. So God's probably doing the same. And there's doubt in my heart. I'm doubting the character of God. Why would I ever expect my prayers to be answered? But do I have faith that He is the God who He says He is? That He will fulfill His promises? That if He says it, He will do it? That He is good and kind and righteous? Even as James says, that He gives to all without criticizing. Another translation says, without finding fault. He's not up there going, How dare you hear? He is waiting to pour out every good and perfect gift if we will be willing to receive it, if we will have faith that he is good like he says he is. I I have been praying regularly, and many of you have probably heard this as, as I'm praying with you or for you. This has become a regular part of my prayer life. You are a good father and you can be trusted because I know that my tendency is to doubt that. And so I pray it regularly, constantly reminding myself, constantly going, that's the battle. Do I believe that he is a good father and that he can be trusted? If I doubt that, everything else falls apart. If we doubt that he is a good God, that he is a powerful God, that he is waiting to pour out on his children the things that he has for them, if we doubt that, we're unstable in all we do and we won't receive anything from him. Does this make sense, church? Okay, we'll continue on next time. There's some other things that come in and short circuit our faith, but Jesus had kind of put that linchpin in there of believe and not doubt, and I didn't feel right about moving on without it. So maybe maybe for us this week, to really just spend some time there, do I doubt the character of God? Just Google sometime, character of God, and see the passages that come up Read through some and go, do I believe that in the depths of my heart? If not, Lord, we need to do some work here. You and I are out of alignment. You say this about yourself and I question it. Lord, bring us into alignment. Help me see as you see. Help me trust as you trust. So maybe that's some homework for you. That is where I've been spending the last year and probably will spend the next couple years. You are a good father and you can be trusted. Forgive me in the times that I doubt and help me in my unbelief. So let me pray and we'll we'll spend some more time worshiping. Lord Jesus, I believe you want far more for us than we currently see. It probably will not look like we think it should look. It may not feel how we think it should feel but you're a good father and you can be trusted. It will be exactly what we need. I hear things like you will do what I did and you will do even greater things. And that seems so far out of my grasp, probably because my faith is in myself. Lord, would you teach us this week to take just baby steps of faith, to trusting what you, what you promise in your word just this much more than we did last week. That we would spend time just asking, seeking your faith, saying, God, show me the Father. Let me see him as faithful. Show me the ways that you have already worked. Build my faith. I think of the Father who brings his son to Jesus and says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And Jesus, you don't rebuke him. You meet him where he's at. Lord, may that be our prayer this week. I believe, help me in my unbelief we see the power of the kingdom at work in our midst through our faith in a good Father who can be trusted. Move as only you can, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.